Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Monday, October 11th, 2021. On today's episode of the show, we are going to be doing a mini water cooler episode. My name is Ben Pearson. I'm a senior writer at SlashFilm.com, and I'm joined on today's episode by Slash Film news editor, Y-Tran Bui. Hey, everyone. HT, welcome back. Uh, I'm really glad to be talking to you about stuff that we've been doing or reading or watching lately. It seems like we haven't been doing much, so let's jump into what we've been reading. What have you been reading recently? I've been reading Once There Were Wolves by Charlotte McConaughey. I'm sorry. (laughs) I was like, ooh, I stumbled over that. Anyways, um, it's an ecological murder mystery book. Uh, uh, It follows this um, sort of woman who helps to rewild forests by introducing wolves into their um, ecosystem. And uh, she is at this sort of Scottish small town where she's trying to reintroduce wolves to the Scottish moors and is being met by lots of resistance by the locals uh, who are farmers and uh, sheep herders and what have you. And she gets involved in a murder mystery of sorts. It's actually very, very good. I quite enjoyed this. I think it's a debut novel from Charlotte McConaughey. And um, it's just a a really fun, really... um, enticing read so that's once there were wolves and it was my book of the month uh not last month because i skipped a couple of months but it was it was quite good that sounds really cool an ecological murder mystery i don't know if i've ever read anything that that sort of bridges that gap between those two very different things so (laughs) that's really cool uh, all right, let's get into what we've been watching, HT. You and I both watched a couple things. Um, let's talk about the, the movie first. Uh, and you have a far better grasp on the French language than I do. So why don't you pronounce this movie and tell people how to, how to say this for real? That's Titan. Okay, Titan. Uh, so you you actually did a, a lot of coverage um, uh, for this movie on SlashFilm.com. You got a, a chance to speak with the uh, writer-director, is that right? Yes, writer-director okay. Julia DeCorno. Um, uh, du Carnot, if you want to say it French. Yes, absolutely, I do. <laughs> and uh, the stars, Agathe Roussel and Vincent Lund- Linden. Okay, so uh, Titan, what did you think about this movie? I loved it. This was a movie, actually, that I watched, and it left me speechless. I did not know exactly how to react or how to really process this movie, but 
by the end of the night, I thought, wow, I really love that movie. And it's a movie that took me entirely by surprise because I haven't seen Ducourneau's first, last film, Raw. And um, I heard a lot of great things about that. And um, I had heard a lot of things about Titan and how it was this wild, crazy, the most shocking movie to win the Palme d'Or at Cannes. And so I had braced myself for that, but I hadn't um, prepared for how surprisingly tender this movie was, especially in the latter half, which takes a hard left turn away from the sort of serial, serial killer slasher genre that the first half was and turns into this sort of strange love story of sorts. Mm-hmm. Um, I really, really enjoyed it. What did you think, Ben? I think it's not really my kind of movie. Um, I, I went in sort of braced with those same expectations, sort of expecting it to be, you know, an uber violent, um, I don't know, like like shock fest. And it is, but I also uh, was surprised by the the tenderness and the the sort of um, yeah like unconventional love story at the center of the story. I just think the um, the uh, self mutilation and like some of the violence in this thing is uh, tips the scale so far in the other direction that it's hard for the movie to ultimately even out. Like there there are some scenes here, um, and I also have not seen Raw, which I understand is like a bit of a uh, uh, a boundary pushing kind of like uh, in your face kind of movie as well. So maybe people who have seen that movie will will be up. Um, I don't know, better prepared for what exactly this film, how far this film is is willing to go. Um, but there are moments in this thing where I was just like, oh my god, my entire body was like locked up because I was cringing so hard. Not not in the sense of like um, you know the office is cringe humor or anything like that, but just like the physical, uh, the visceral nature of the violence that is being inflicted in this movie is so extreme. And so, um, I mean, it's it's really uh, incredibly effective because it's all very purposeful. And and I've read, you know, some articles about it and, and the, um, you know, it, it works on all these different metaphoric levels and, and the, the themes of the movie, I think, are really well drawn. But just the actual experience of watching it for me was just a really, really tough one. And and at the end of the day, I just think the, the scales are so uh, imbalanced that I, I couldn't really walk away from this feeling great about having watched it. That's fair. Um, it's funny to me because I'm I consider myself a very squeamish a very squeamish person, but I actually did not uh, was not so bothered by the extremities and the violence and the the visceral nature of this movie, just because I think that it's sort of in line with the with what the film is trying to explore, sort of that inherent violence of the female body of mm-hmm. of pregnancy of just um, what can be inflicted upon women and by women upon themselves. And I thought that was so interesting. Um, so <laughs> yeah, I guess I'm, I'm okay. I was okay with it, but yeah, it, it is not for the faint of heart uh, to say the least. Yes. Okay. So yeah, I, I would encourage you guys to uh, actually, I'll link them in the show notes, all of HT's coverage of, of that movie, because I think there's a lot of uh, really interesting stuff there, even if the film didn't quite like gel perfectly for me, but it, it's definitely one of the, the most unforgettable films of 2021. I'll say that much. Um, another unforgettable piece of content in 2021 is Squid Game HT. This, uh, I don't think we've had a podcast yet where we've talked about this, um, but I think to, to ultimately talk about this, I think we have to spoil it. And I think it's been out for what, like two weeks now. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's such a big, you know, zeitgeisty sort of pop culture breakthrough hit that I think 
I'm going to guess a lot of Slash Film listeners have listened to this all the way through. So let's just go ahead and maybe drop a spoiler warning here for the entirety of Squid Game, all nine episodes, um, so we can talk about that. So uh, just fast forward you know, several minutes if you don't want to hear any of our thoughts and don't want to be spoiled about this. But um, HD, what did you think about Squid Game? It's great. Uh, I honestly was, when I, when I first saw that this was the huge crossover hit, I thought, oh, I was kind of surprised because there have been many K-dramas that have sort of entered the mainstream consciousness of America. And I wondered why it was this one in particular. Um, and I actually hadn't seen it yet. I'd seen it sort of making the rounds in the sort of K-drama community. And I thought, that sounds interesting, but I never actually got around to watching it until it started to make big waves over at Netflix. And I picked it up and I thought, and as soon as I watched that first episode, I thought, oh, this is why. And to uh, to avoid any sort of surface level Parasite comparisons, it does tap into a lot of what made Parasite such a huge global crossover hit as well. The high ambition of this sort of high concept premise, which is the this group of people who are massively in debt basically sign away their, the rights to their bodies and find themselves uh, brought into this sick game in which they compete for a huge piggy bank of money that's floating over their heads if you want a metaphor for capitalism if if there's anyone and um competes uh to win this money in basically a series of children's games that uh turn deadly so it's basically death games but like with children's games and a, a smattering of of ultraviolence and uh, commentary about capitalism and class divisions, which is very, very in line with a lot of Korean um, films and TV. There's always an undercurrent of class uh, commentary in these things. But I think Squid Game and how it does it uh, is that it manages to deliver this commentary in a really fun and really engaging and really shocking um, sort of premise, which are these kid games turned uh, violent. And it's so it's so um, uh, visually striking to the sets that they they have. And then like, of course, the concept of people performing in death games for uh, what would be um, for the entertainment of potentially other people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I guess we're, we're going to spoilers. So for the, yeah, gender, for like the entertainment of the rich and the wealthy um, and the Americans, essentially. <laughs> Yeah, um, is it's just like it's really, really sharp writing and really just um, it makes sense why this was the crossover hit. It's it's just also great character writing too, great performances all around. Um, Jacob actually made a really potent and um, com- comparison. I think he compared it to Lost mixed with something that I didn't know. So I'm sorry for <laughs> paraphrasing it badly. <laughs> but yeah, it, it has similar like character drama and character dynamic, dynamic writing as Lost where you get to care about all these people and why they actually are involved in these games and why they are basically selling each other and selling themselves out for this money. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's just uh, fantastic stuff. Yeah, I really loved it all the way up until the uh, the aforementioned Americans roll in. Um, I thought that all of that, the okay, so so I just want to underline that I echo every single thing that you just said. Uh, and I, I really love especially like the first, I don't know, let's call it six episodes. Um, I think it's so exceptionally beautifully shot for so, for such a violent, uh, you know, something with such violence at its core. Um, and the character work is just fantastic. But once it gets to the the sort of reveal that like these masked white people basically roll in and, and are sort of, um, you know, just they're the faceless uh, rich people who are, are, 
toying with these these poor people's lives uh, just for, for their own amusement. I think we've seen that kind of thing done so much better in other, you know, uh, pieces of pop culture storytelling that uh, that sort of ha- had these same, um, that explored these same themes. And the, the dialogue, the difference in dialogue between, you know, 90% of the show or maybe 95% of the show probably and the 5% of, of conversations that uh, are had with those characters, I mean, it is just night and day in terms of quality. Like, the, it, it sounds um, like like it's been, like it's not only written in a different language, but like cycled through two or three different language filters and then uh, and then just like spat out by an algorithm or something. It's it, I, I was just like, I don't, I was talking to my wife about this. I don't think there's any single piece of uh, entertainment, movies or TV, that I've ever seen that has such a high threshold of quality and then such a deep valley of, uh, of terrible, terrible quality in, in this one particular aspect than in Squid Game. Like, then, I just think, then you yeah. have not seen any other K-drama because no, I, I have not. it's hilarious how consistently terrible characterizations and dialogue <laughs> are for any English-speaking or American characters in K-dramas. And hot take, I kind of enjoy how cartoonishly evil they are and how bad the dialogue is and how bad the writing is i mean maybe i'm kind of nostalgic for it because whenever a, a K, uh, an american character pops up in a k-drama it just is like uh this like d-list actor who like they picked up from the streets yeah. and it's like cannot deliver any of the dialogue and i'm like this is hilarious okay so but i'm really glad that you I, told me that by it so yeah, I'm glad that you told me that because now I have the context to know that it's not just a Squid Game problem. It is, uh, and it's, it problem. might not even be like a problem. It's just like a choice that that is made across K drama. So that that sort of recontextualizes the whole thing in my head. Uh, I still, you know, just as a as an isolated experience, found that to be extremely off putting. <laughs> like like what is going on? Everything else is executed at such a high level, and this one aspect is, is really messed up. So anyway, um, and then the other thing, and since we're in full spoilers here, again, final warning here i just didn't really love the ending ht the fact that the old guy was the one who was behind it all along i just it's just sort of not strange credulity because this entire show is like almost you know it walks this fine line between um being like that like you're saying this sharp critique of that feels like all too real and then also a little bit fantastical because of uh you know if you, as soon as you start thinking about like what are what are the um how exactly is all of this working? You know, like the, uh, the Island where all of these massive sets are constructed and like, how could all of this stuff, you know, once we you go down those, uh, those sort of logic paths, um, I think the show could fall apart for you a little bit. I, mm-hmm. That never happened with, for me because I think the characterization stuff was so great that I didn't really get uh, sidetracked by any of that. But the, the fact that this old guy who participates in the games, um, you know, at least through the first six episodes is actually like secretly the one behind it the whole time. I just think that was meant to be like a big reveal. And I'm just not entirely certain what the show is trying to say by having him be the one behind the curtain at the, at the very end. I think, you know, we're talking about it being this, uh, this commentary on, on capitalism and, and class. I just think if it was more overtly, if it, if it underlined its point a little bit further, a little bit more at the end about um, the rich people being the ones who are orchestrating this whole thing and, uh, you know, how, how this, like, 
maybe like everybody knows about this game and it's being covered up by governments and organizations because it benefits pe- rich people who are making money off the whole thing or something. I think that would have been like a much more, um, I don't know, like a, a little bit of a sharper commentary than just what it does ultimately at the end here by being like, ah, this old guy, he was, <laughs> he just wanted to be in the games. Like I just, and maybe they're saving some of that for the second season. I, I leave that uh, open in my mind as a possibility. But um, a- after starting so strong, I just sort of thought that I thought, I thought for the first six episodes, holy crap, this is going to be like a 10 out of 10 show. And for me, it ended up being like, I don't know, like an eight and a half out of 10 or something, because I thought it dropped off a little bit at the end. But yeah. um, what did you think about the ending? Yeah, I felt a little bit like a twist for twist's sake. Um, I think that the revelation of the um, the American sort of wealthy investors was in line with what the show was doing. And I thought, and I, even though it's something we've seen before, I thought it was fun. And <laughs> in the other cartoonish, the evil aspect of it, I thought also was fun because I just like that kind of hammy stuff. And also I think it's just like, I kind of expect it with K-dramas and even some K- Korean films. Like if you watch uh, Bong Joon-ho's The Host, the oh, yeah. first scene with the American scientist is like, pour the, the, the chemicals <laughs> yes. down the drain. And you're like, yeah, this guy's cartoonishly evil. <laughs> so maybe it's like finally we're seeing Americans through the lens of um, of other films. And it's yeah. kind of refreshing to me to see just like Americans uh, and white people sort of shown in this really dumb, uh, dumbed down way. So yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's just, and maybe it's just a bit cathartic for me from, in that sense. Um, but yeah. Um, actually, I have a question for you, Ben. Yes. Um, I know that the creator of Squid Game ha- um, had actually developed the story as a feature film first before it eventually became a TV series. Do you think huh. it would have worked better as a feature film? I think, oh, man, that's a. I think it would have been a really interesting movie, but I think it works better uh, as a show because of what you said, that lost comparison of like mm-hmm. really getting to hammer and drill down on the the mentality behind these people. Because I think they work so well as archetypes in the first couple episodes where you're just like, oh, this person is easily categorized, you know, is e- easily categorizable as the degenerate gambler, gambler, or, you know, this sort of a gangster's mall, this like crazy woman um, who who is like one of my favorite characters in the show or uh, or this this um, woman who is like a defector from North Korea. And, and you know, she's just like a thief, a, a pickpocket kind of thing. But like as the show goes on, you learn you're able to learn more and more about them. And I think if, if it would have just dropped down to like two hours, uh, you would have lost a lot of that nuance. And I think mm-hmm. there's that's that's my favorite part of the show is just like learning about these people um the the candy colored uh violence and the the um children's game aspect is the hook but i think the the show works so well because of its characters yeah i agree um all right so any any closing thoughts on squid game Squid Game is great. Uh, Watch Alice in Borderland, also on Netflix. More death games, more puzzles, less class commentary and capitalism commentary, but still really fun. Okay. All right. Uh, So I'll just talk really quickly about a couple of things that I've been watching. One of them is uh, Martin Scorsese's 1985 movie, After Hours. Have you ever seen this film? I haven't, no. Okay. So it's about this guy who is played by uh, Griffin Dunn, who it's it's uh, like a one crazy night movie where this guy um, meets up with this girl in New York City and he he meets her at a a diner and, or a cafe. And she says, she gives him her number and, and, or the number of a friend's place where she's staying and says like, okay, you know, 
call me later, whatever. And he eventually calls her and then uh, tries to go. The whole movie is like him trying to just like uh, meet up with this girl, have a date with this girl. And then once that happens, he sort of gets a new, it's it's very video gamey almost like he gets a new goal and then like tries to make his way across the city. And then he just keeps encountering absurd obstacles all along the way. And, and all he wants to do by the end of the night is just get home, but he can't do it because all, it seems like the universe is just uh, conspiring against him with all these ridiculous scenarios that play out where it's just this normal guy. He's living in a normal, you know, uh, relatively gritty version of New York city. And all he's trying to do is get home. And the entire movie is just like him, um, you know, like banging his head against a wall at all of these different obstacles that come up. So Typically, uh, I've seen a lot of things that have been inspired by this movie. Like I'm thinking of, there's an episode of Atlanta HD. I don't know if you watch that show or not, but mm-hmm. yeah, it's been a while though. There's that that episode where um, Paperboy is just trying to get a haircut. I don't know if you remember that. Uh, and that he, um, I think so, yes. And he is just like he he shows up at the guy's house. I think that, that he's supposed to do the the haircut at the guy's house, and he's like. Yeah, I'll give you your haircut. You just have to come with me real quick. I have to like run an errand or something. And the entire episode is just like Paperboy being furious at being dragged along on this guy's errands and he can't just get the one thing that he wants. And um, it's a well done episode of, of television, but it's the kind of storytelling that just drives me crazy because there's really, there's one goal in the entire movie is, or the, the entire show in that case, the entire episode is a character wanting something and not being able to get it. And I just find that really, I mean, it's, it's frustrating on purpose, but um, yeah, it's just tough for me to watch. After Hours, I think, is that kind of thing. But because of that sort of video gamey, that's a really basic comparison, but like that structure that I talked about earlier, where like he wants something and then he tries to go get it. He's He encounters a bunch of obstacles. He eventually gets it. And then he changes his goal. Um, you know, something else happens. So it's like there's a bunch, you have a bunch of um, like lily pads to to take a, a breath on, to catch your breath on, you know, instead of just trying to uh, swim all the way from one side of the river to the next, if that makes any sense. So um, yeah, I, I really enjoyed this movie. It's streaming on the Criterion uh, channel right now. It's called After Hours, if you want to check that out. There's a lot of cool uh, little um, cameos and, and performances in it. Uh, Rosanna Arquette is in it. Um, John Hurd and Catherine O'Hara, who play the, the parents in Home Alone, uh, they are both in this movie, which I thought was a fun little connection. So yeah, uh, After Hours is, is uh, definitely worth your time. And then finally, I just wanted to mention this TV show called Hilda. I wrote about this on an episode or a, an edition of uh, The Daily Stream on SlashHome.com. HD, I think you in particular would love this show. It is one of my favorite shows um, of my adult life, which is really weird because Ooh. I think the show is uh, is ostensibly a children's show. It's not so young that it's like, here's the color red. <laughs> you know, it's not it's not a show like that, but it's definitely aimed at you know kids who are probably whatever ten to twelve years old or something. But the writing in this thing is so good, and it it, it uh, so it, it basically is like a reverse version of Wolfwalkers, which I know that you liked a lot. So in Hilda, this character named Hilda, who's a young girl, she's probably yeah, 10 or something. She has blue hair. She uh, lives with her mom and uh, this deer fox pet that she has, a combination of a deer and a fox. It is a, the character's name is Twig, this little pet. And it is like one of the cutest characters in TV history. It's so adorable. So they live out, you know, isolated out in the middle of the woods. And Hilda um, 
is always encountering like supernatural creatures like giants and uh, elves and things like that. And I think the second or third episode, she and her mom move into the city and it's sort of a, a reverse wolf walkers in that way where like uh, that um, movie was about a girl from the city uh, sort of having to like going out into the woods and experiencing uh, the supernatural and nature and all these sort of spirits and things like that magic. And Hilda is like this girl going into the city and you would think that magic would not really be present in the city, but it is. And she finds it everywhere and she makes friends with these people who are, um, you know, these uh, colleagues of hers, these little classmates of hers who are in like a, essentially like a, a scout troop and every episode is like them encountering a different supernatural creature or uh, coming up with like a little puzzle to solve, like having these, um, there are trolls that are, that are uh, trying to, you know, uh, like permeate the city walls and they have to figure out ways to stop them. And um, it, it's a really, really perfectly written show. Uh, it's got a, a touch of magic to it, which I love. And the, the characterizations again are just so great. The, the designs, the aesthetic of the show is perfect. It feels like a coloring book come to life. Um, and it is just so it's such a pleasant watch. Like every episode is, um, is, is great. Like there's not really a bad episode in the entire bunch. So two seasons of the show have been uh, released on Netflix so far. I'm like, one or two episodes away from the end of season two. And uh, man, I just cannot speak highly enough about Hilda. It is really, really um, a wondrous, uh, magical little show. So um, HD, if you get a chance to check us out, I'm, I'd be very curious. Yeah, to, it to sounds hear what you very think. up my alley. I need to yeah, watch it. Definitely. Uh, all right. So what have you been watching? Well, I just recently wrapped up covering the New York Film Festival, uh, and I watched a lot of movies there, so I'm going to try to keep it as brisk as possible. But these are a few of the favorite movies that I saw there. And yes, I am very bummed that I missed Pedro Almodovar's Parallel Mothers. It was the closing night film. I couldn't go see it, and I don't want to talk about it. Oh, <laughs> it so was one sorry, of my most anticipated movies. It's fine. I'll, I'll watch it at some point. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, the movies I did really enjoy watching at the New York Film Festival uh, were The Tragedy of Macbeth. That's uh, Joel Cohen's adaptation of the Shakespeare Scottish play starring Denzel Washington and Francis McDormand. Uh, it's striking. It's minimalist. It's, it's borderline German expressionist. Um, I have a review for that on Slashmom.com. Please check that out. I adored uh, this take, which was surprisingly bleak and... Um, just very, very striking. Uh, the next one I liked was Drive My Car, uh, which I actually just wrote a piece for that up uh, today about um, the perils of adapting a Haruki Murakami book, um, or rather a short story in this case. Haruki Murakami is the author of such novels as 1Q84, uh, Kafka on the Shore, and um, his, his style is very... Um, surreal magical realism uh sort of the strange being away at the fabric of your own reality kind of thing and um drive my car which is directed by ryusuke hamaguchi is surprisingly light and humanist and warm which is very much in contrast to a lot of uh adaptations of Murakami and Murakami himself hmm. and um I I really really enjoyed it despite it's it's a three-hour movie, and I did not feel that runtime at 
all. I was just really enjoying being in this world, being with these characters, um, like living in their journeys as they try to overcome whatever demons they are. And it follows this um, this man who is a uh, stage director and actor, and his wife is a TV writer. And uh, he finds out that she is cheating on him, um, but after before he's able to confront her about it, she suddenly dies from a brain hemorrhage, and he's kind of left with all these unanswered questions. And it takes place many years later when he's sort of talking and forming this bond with this female chauffeur, chauffeur that he has, this driver, um, and uh, he's kind of talking about his relationship with his wife and the mysteries of 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 that relationship and <laughs> kind of coming to terms with his own sort of maybe he won't find out those mysteries and learning more about the people around him too. It's, it's a great, um, lovely, lovely film. I, I adore drive my car. Awesome. Um, so, uh, another one is Benedetta. That's Paul Verhoeven's lesbian nun movie. <laughs> um, it's a, an erotic drama meets criticism of systemic religion and religious institutions and um, it's actually based on a real story of a woman who uh, claimed that she had visions of seeing Jesus Christ, uh, but was denied sainthood uh, because uh, she went under trial for having a, a lesbian relationship with one of the nuns at her abbey. And um, it's all you need to know about Benedetta is, <laughs> is that there is a Virgin Mary statue, a wooden Virgin Mary statue that is turned into a dildo. <laughs> Mm, of course, and that's yes. really all you need to know about it. Subtlety is for losers, as Paul Verhoeven <laughs> basically says with this movie. Okay, great. <laughs> <laughs> so Benedetta, great, great film. Um, another film that I I liked a lot was Red Rocket, uh, Sean Baker's follow up to the Florida Project. Doesn't really quite pack the emotional wallop that the Florida Project does, but I enjoy very much this sort of. Uh, new Americana that Sean Baker is starting to um, kind of carve out with his films and that he's sort of portraying and depicting these sort of seedy outposts of America and people who um, are generally unlikable and unsympathetic and making them sympathetic in some way mm -hmm. um, and following them and giving them something that's like this clear-eyed depiction uh, despite, you know, whatever – hardships or actual uh crimes that they are going that they're committing uh red rocket for example follows um a uh basically suitcase pimp played by um simon rex who uh he's a washed up porn actor he goes back to his hometown uh, to sort of like you know beg at the foot of his ex-wife and ask him to ask her to stay with him or ask her her to let him stay with her mm -hmm. and um he sort of falls in love with this uh young teenager uh and basically tries to get her to join the porn industry with him and uh it's a really really it's it's a movie that will like i can i know will drum up a lot of discourse when it does come out uh mm -hmm. just because the character basically he is a predator um and the sh movie makes no um like you know, makes no uh, apologies about that or excuses about that. But uh, it's it's really funny. It's it's very honest and frank, and it has the best use cinematic use of InSync's "Bye Bye Bye." 
in film that I've seen. Uh, a really interesting movie and almost a good companion piece to the Safdie Brothers' Uncut Gems. Um, if that is enticing at all to any of you. Interesting. Okay. All right. What else have you seen? Uh, other things I liked. The French Dispatch, Les Anderson's new film. I loved it. It's so, so intensely Wes Anderson. Um, it is just jam-packed full of imagery and stuff that I was almost overwhelmed with how much was happening visually on screen. Um, and I've heard criticisms that it's emotionally inert because it's just so stylized, but I disagree. And I think there's actually a lot of warmth to be found uh, in this film, which is basically New Yorker fan fiction. But I, <laughs> I really enjoyed watching The Friendship Dispatch, and it's a movie that I can't wait to, to revisit just because there's so much happening, and I want to see it again and be able to find something new every time I watch it. So what do you think about Grand Budapest Hotel, HC? Where is that on your sort of uh, ranking of Wes Anderson stuff? I love Grand Budapest Hotel. I okay, actually... I do too. And I'm wondering if this movie, because I've really tried to stay pretty far away from all the marketing stuff for French mm-hmm. Dispatch. I'm just always hoping that the next Wes Anderson movie is going to be sort of like on the level of Grand Budapest. So would you say that this movie is that or or not? Quite? I'd say it's not as good as Grand Budapest Hotel because I do think there's a bigger emotional core to Grand Budapest and a sort of melancholy to Grand Budapest that French mm-hmm. Dispatch doesn't, it has, but not, doesn't really allow itself to linger upon just because the vignettes there's so many things happening um so it's not on the level of of grand budapest hotel but it is still very enjoyable and very good excellent excellent and then you had a chance to see celine siama's new movie the director of uh, portrait of a lady on fire which is like one of my favorite films ever uh i'm super jealous that you've got a chance to see her new movie so what what was that one about i adored uh petite maman that's her new film and it's a an incredible 180 from Portrait of a Lady on Fire, where Portrait of a Lady on Fire was lush, complex, multi-layered, lavish. Petite Maman is surprisingly very low-key. Um, it was filmed during COVID, so it, takes, it has like basically three locations. And it's about 78 minutes long, so it's barely more than an hour. And it follows uh, this young girl who um, whose grandmother has just passed. And her mother is really struggling to deal with the grief and the trauma from it. And um, they go to her mother's childhood home to clean it out after the grandmother's passing. And the mother basically disappears. She, she leaves uh, during this process. She just kind of can't really handle it. And um, the young girl... Uh, sort of starts exploring the woods, trying to find this hut that her mother used to build when she was a girl and finds herself traipsing back into time and meets her mother as a child, the same age as she is. And uh, it becomes this sort of really sweet, really lovely um, slice of life film about these two girls who become fast friends, but they are actually like mother and daughter. Mm -hmm. And um, it's about sort of processing that grief through the lens of childhood innocence. It reminded me a lot of um, sort of more low-key Japanese films, some Hayao Miyazaki films um, uh, that I think it's not quite as grand as Portrait of Lady on Fire, but I loved just how much you could kind of glean from the very uh, simple uh, and some might argue slight a story of Petit Maman. I, I really, really enjoyed it. It's one of my favorite movies of the year. Amazing. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to that one. Uh, speaking of things I'm looking forward to, Dune. You yeah, also saw Dune. Dude. I love Dune. 
<laughs> I know this one is going to be divisive because it's more spectacle and immersive spectacle than really anything uh, narratively satisfying because it is a part one and it is very clearly a part one. But I was just on its vibe, man. I was really on board for what Denis Villeneuve and everyone else was putting down. Um, there was this weird spider human thing. Uh, there's two scenes, two separate scenes where Jason Momoa gets out of a spaceship. Everyone's really excited to see him. And he says to Timothy Chalamet, my boy. <laughs> I'm really <laughs> excited about that. Just the spectacle of it, um, the grandness, the scope, the ambition. Um I absolutely loved it. And I'm I'm also a real sucker for stupidly dense science fantasy that <laughs> you need an encyclopedia to keep track of. And I felt like it was so much that I was just really enjoying it. I know that's not going to be for everyone, but if that's for you, then Dune is for you. I'm so excited about this one too. So, oh man. Yeah. Can't wait. That one comes out like what, next week or something on uh, HBO Max, I think? It comes out in like Very two soon. weeks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So um, I also watched outside of New York Film Festival, just like a lot of screenings happening at the same time. I watched Flea, which is this animated documentary. Um, It's directed by uh, Jonas Poer Rasmussen. And it's about his friend who was a a refugee from um, Afghanistan. And um, it's this uh, basically just it's filmed – he shot it in like person and then he animated the actual documentary footage and then inserted all this archival footage uh, alongside what he was narrating and then um, the flashbacks to what he was narrating. And it's this, oh, it's like rotoscoped. Yeah, it's not rotoscoped. It's actually just like animated, but it's oh, okay. Um, it's really, really incredible. It's just it's breathtakingly good. It's moving. It's powerful. It's affecting all of those adjectives. And the fact that it was animated really lends itself, I don't want to say an otherworldliness because it is so grounded in reality, but it, it just gives it this fresh, I don't want to say fresh either, this brand new look to it um, that makes it even more evocative uh, than it could have been, than it might have been as a, just a live action documentary. And of course, mm-hmm. the animation serves a second purpose, which is to help hide his friend's identity um, uh, throughout this process. But it's... um. It's a really fantastic film. Honestly, another one of my favorite films of the year. Uh, incredible. If you have the chance to see it, please, please do. Okay, so that's called Flea. Definitely put that on your radar. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then one more thing you've been watching too, right? I watched Lamb, uh, a surprisingly gentle uh, horror folk film uh, from A24. It stars Numi Rapash. And uh, it's about this uh, couple who um, are like, in a farm who who raise in a farm this farmer couple who raise sheep essentially for a living and uh uh discover that one of the sheep that their um one of the lambs that their sheep has given birth to uh is a strange hybrid animal lamb creature and basically take it in and it's this uh really surprisingly lovely dark fairy tale um i don't want to go too much into it because i already gave away the biggest spoiler i guess but uh it's in the trailer right it's in the trailer lamb it's about this nice lamb (laughs) (laughs) actually i would one thing i will say is i would actually hesitate to call it a horror film it's more of a dark fairy tale than anything um which is why i think you should uh, temper your expectations if you're going in thinking a24 horror it's more about just kind of 
this this yeah like surprisingly gentle dark fairy tale that um, felt like it was dreamt up in the odd hours of the night. Okay, so Midsommar, this is not uh, yes. <laughs> good to know for people's expectations. Uh, that is called Lamb. That is in theaters right now. And I think that is going to bring us to the end of today's episode of Slash Film Daily. You can find uh, a couple of the things that we mentioned on the show at SlashFilm.com and linked inside the show notes of this episode. Slash Film Daily is published every weekday, bringing you the most exciting news from the world of movies and TV, as well as deeper dives into the great features you can find on the site. You can subscribe to the show on Apple, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps, and send your feedback, questions, comments, concerns, and mailbag topics to us at peter at slashfilm.com. Make sure to leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention your email on the air. Don't forget to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. Tell your friends, spread the word. Thank you all for listening, and we will talk to you tomorrow. Baseball fans, BetMGM is giving you the chance to win a prize every day during the baseball season. Step into the batter's box for BetMGM Swing for the Fences free-to-play game. Pick any area of the strike zone and take your best swing. If you get a single, double, triple, or home run, you'll receive a prize. Smash a home run to collect a bonus bet on us. Just log into your BetMGM Sports account to get started. Then visit your promotion section to access the Swing for the Fences free-to-play game. You'll score a prize if you hit a single, double, triple, or home run. There's nothing more exciting than going yard. So swing for the fences with the king of sportsbooks. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. Must be 21 plus and present in Ohio. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards vary depending on the market and expire 24 hours from issuance. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER and partnership with MGM Northfield Park.